Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and the 97.5 Network, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports, as everybody breathes a deep sigh of relief on the other side of the glass, Jeff. There, there's like 15 engineers that are on the other side of the glass, making sure as we're trying something fancy and new. Uh, I definitely think that we're We're not on. worthy of fancy and new, but what the heck? Well, why don't you intro our first guest? I don't see him, but I'll have the board put him up. Uh, but he's supposed to be on the line for us here. Well, are we sure he's there? Uh, they say that he is here. Right. They'll have to put him up on the line. So, so we're hoping that we have Jesse Washington, senior writer for The Undefeated. Jesse, are you there and how are you? Voila. Yes. Oh, the magic That's of radio. French for in the place to be. <laughs> and, uh, I'm here and I'm great. Well, Jesse, before we get to some, some more serious uh, topics that we wanted to have you on for, you put out a piece today for ESPN The Undefeated. I'm just going to say a phrase, balling with spalling, and let you go from there and tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, man, balling like I'm spalding. Um, so at the end of this NBA season, spalding will no longer be the official ball of the NBA. And apparently uh, the NBA wanted a little bit too much cash to continue the partnership. And Spalding was like, you know what? We're good. You know, our name is mentioned in 5,100,000 rap songs. We're established. <laughs> we still got the Spalding Never Flat, you know, which is my favorite outdoor basketball that I've played with most recently on the Hank Gathers Playground in North Philly. And so, um, you know, Spalding was like, we're good. We're going to move away and just continue to do what we do. They still endorse all the backboards in the league. They still got all kinds of great basketballs. And so, you know, I just had a little fun with it from the Hoopers perspective. Shout to all my guys in Philly that I used to hoop with when I lived there. Philly is one of the greatest basketball cities in the world. Um, you know, a lot of OGs doing a lot of great things. Shout to my son Coltrane who plays at Drexel University, uh, defending conference champions and NCAA tournament appearance. So, that's what I was up to uh, for the undefeated writing today. So we're a little hurt. You know, Jason and I once tried out for the, the Sixers G League team. It didn't and, go well. And and, and, <laughs> and, and and somehow you didn't invite us. If you were out on the court at the Hank Gathers court, we expect to be there. Yeah, I provide good well, comic relief. I got something for you. And, and yes, that sounds like a stunt. And so if you're willing to embarrass yourself, you are Every day. invited to the next edition of the full court 21 basketball tournament, which is one on five, the game of 21. It's been out at Hang Gathers the past couple of years, but it was on pause for the pandemic. The winner of that tournament gets to go to the all world full court 21 championship played in New York city with winners of one day tournaments from all over the world. Um, your boy, Jesse has won the Hang Gathers jump two or three times in the past. I'm losing track. I'm going to have to put Jeff into training with you, Jesse, you know, <laughs> yeah, you guys might have to do some laps and push-ups, you know, something uh, before you come out there. You, laps you, and push-ups. Yeah, well, you know what? Last time I had to wear my Apple Watch just to make sure that my heart rate didn't go too high. <laughs> but you, you let us know when that is, and we'll be there. We may, we may not be there for long. <laughs> we're standing, <laughs> but but we will be there. That's a bet. So, <laughs> so we're gonna get to something a little more serious because, um, you know, we we like to have the deep discussions with you, and and there are serious topics out there. Jeff and I have watched a lot of soccer lately. We reached out to you the the Euro final twenty twenty the the just absolutely abhorrent racism, which isn't new, but directed at the three players from England after they didn't score in in the shootout. 
sports is supposed to bring people together. What What is this, and, and what is your answer to how they stop this? Because a slap on the wrist from a soccer association isn't going to stop racism. Yeah, man. You know, it's very discouraging, but I'm just uh, – I'm – I'm sort of uh, aggravated that everyone's acting surprised. Like you didn't know that this racism is there. You should have. And really, I think that what everybody's these leagues and these commissioners and everything is that they're embarrassed. Like, yes, we're making money from these people. You know, nobody should be surprised that it comes out in these situations. Shoot, it's probably about 10 years ago that I did a story about there was a playoff game between the Bruins and it might have been even the Flyers and, uh, um, a black player like missed a shot or something like that and was subjected to a torrent of, of racist abuse on social media. But, you know, this is when the, the medium was a little bit new. So, you know, what's going on in Europe, people should just accept that as an indication of there is a ton of racism left in our society. We try to pretend like it's not there, but it is. So let's deal with that. Let's not just, you know, tisk tisk and slap on the wrist when it comes out in public at a very international high profile event and embarrasses everybody. So, so where does it start? Does it start with the athlete? Cause we've had Mark McKenzie who used to play for the Philadelphia union on to talk about how he's he's dealt with this in his life. And he's now in Europe and he's taken the opportunity to point that out. And he said, there are things that are bigger than just me. There are things that are bigger than the team. And I felt that this was something I needed to, that needed to be said. Does it start with the athletes and go from there? Or where do you go to help solve the problem? Well, man, that's a, that's a very deep question, but this is the heart of sports, and this is what we talk about here. So, you know, I mean, I think it starts at the most basic human level of how we raise our children and how we really look at ourselves and scrutinize our own beliefs and feelings and try to treat everybody with dignity and respect regardless. I mean, that's really where it starts. And then at the pro sports level, I think it starts with the club. I think that they can police this type of behavior if they saw fit. Um, I think that they, there's a lot of racist abuse that goes on in stands. And if the clubs were proactive about dealing with it and they tapped a few fans on the shoulder and said, hey, man, we just heard you screaming racist abuse in this meaningless regular season game, you're banned. And then you put out a little tweet about that, then that's going to go, you know, towards saying, okay, it's not acceptable. What it appears to be in this Euro final is that it's only acceptable on the big stage when it embarrasses us or when it's caught. So I think that the clubs do have a responsibility to keep people out of the arenas like that. The same as has happened in the NBA with a few high profile examples, you know, but I mean, it's going to keep happening. You know, our society has a lot of work to do and it's going to require a lot of work and frankly, a lot of sacrifice from all of us, black, white, and everything in between. And so we have to be willing to engage in that work if we don't want to see these kind of things happen. I think it's important that these athletes speak up, but I don't think the burden should be on them who are facing the racist abuse to solve the problem of racism. And that's the thing that I think is difficult when we say athletes raise their voice. It's you're the victim of the abuse and you have to raise your voice to solve the problem. But other people should be standing up to solve the problem with you. It shouldn't just be you raising your voice. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I agree wholeheartedly. And uh, let's start with the people who are responsible for solving the problem, the ones who stage the event. You know, you have a responsibility if you are making this money from the toils of these athletes, these black athletes and others to um, present it in a form free of hate. You know, how about that? 
You know, uh, if we've got uh, racist behavior going on in a workplace or in a school or in a business, then the people who run those organizations have a responsibility to stamp that out. So do the people who put on these sports events. You know, you mentioned something that people shouldn't be surprised. I got to tell you, as I was watching that final, that was my immediate reaction was, we know this is coming. And and that's the unfortunate mm-hmm. part of this is that you, you kind of know now with sports, especially with, with international sports, there seems to be nothing governing this. Now, they've made some efforts with regard to the Mexican national team, but it, there has to be more to it. And there has to be, it has to be more than the athletes, more than the leagues. It has to be society. And it, it also, there has to be even more than that. And one of the things that that we we appreciate about you and the work that you're doing is the work that the undefeated is doing. And and what was what was the impetus to the undefeated coming about? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. And it was two. So, a guy named John Skipper, one of the giants uh, in in sports executive dumb, who is the former president of ESPN. And this is before the era of cord cutting when ESPN was just basically printing money. And he and John Skipper, ironically, for a television executive, a successful television executive, is a man of letters to a certain extent, the possessor of a master's degree in English literature uh, and loves the written word. And first, he proceeded to amass maybe the biggest and greatest collection of sports writing talent in the history of journalism at ESPN.com. And then he started launching specialty websites, uh, ESPNW, Grantland. Um, 538. And these are all things to showcase the work of writers in a particular niche. And then he decided to, okay, let's do the same thing with the undefeated, although it didn't have that name yet. And and let's have a place that's a destination for black uh, people who are interested in black subjects for black readers that will deal with black issues. And his motivation as, as he explained it to us at the time was twofold. Number one, uh, the black audience watches plenty of ESPN on television, but they engage with ESPN digitally at a lower rate. And Skipper knew, understood the future of ESPN is digital. And so he said, all right, we've got to engage this audience. That's number one motivation. And number two was he felt like it was something worthwhile to be done. He felt that black journalists and the black viewpoint needed more elevation and more prominence and was willing to invest a sizable amount of Disney's money to do so. So that's how we came about. And, you know, we just celebrated our fifth anniversary. Um, We're still expanding. We've got tons of great stuff going on on television. Um, We've still got a a stellar lineup of writers. My colleague Soraya McDonald was nominated and a finalist for a Pulitzer last year. So, you know, I'm very pleased to still be um, with the undefeated. We are on our third editor-in-chief. Um, recently, Kevin Meredith departed for the LA Times, and I'm proud to say that The Undefeated is run by three black women, including our current editor-in-chief, Raina Kelly. And so, you know, it's a great place to work. How important is that structure to the way that you provide coverage? Because we're going to have on Susie Petricelli later to talk about, um, you know, women coverage and media coverage of women in sports. How important is it to have that leadership at the top that provides you the continued outlet to give this, as you called it, niche coverage, but coverage that's really essential to all audiences, but particularly the audience you're serving? 
Yeah, I think it's essential, you know, and I had a conversation with a colleague and the undefeated, you know, we, we still have ways to go and things to do to improve and we could probably um, put more effort and energy behind covering certain women's sports. Um, and, and it's like a chicken and the egg argument. A lot of people say, well, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to cover, uh, put the resources into covering women's basketball because the audience isn't there. Well, if you put the resources in them, the audience will get bigger, you know? And so these are the type of things that we have to think about. But I think the biggest impact of having black women in charge of the undefeated is just that, um, they are, they bring an awareness and a lens and push me as a guy to make sure that I'm looking things from an equitable point of view, that I'm really examining myself for, for sexism and assumptions. And, you know, I said earlier that one of the problems, I mean, one of the solutions to solving the problem of these racist attacks on these pro soccer players is for all of us to examine ourselves and to really be self-aware about our biases. And I have them too. You know, um, I have two daughters who are athletes. I have a wife who is a, who my daughters get their athleticism from. And so when you're in that type of environment and when you're working for black women, then, um, and then the final product is things that I probably wouldn't think of. For example, we had a great special on ESPN plus called a love letter to black women. And basically this was really acknowledging black women athletes and the contributions that they had made. Would I have thought of that? Probably not. I was honored to participate in it when they asked me to write the introduction. And the first thing I did was went to my wife and my two daughters who were all black and was like, all right, help me out here. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's um, having that element of leadership at the undefeated is very special, very important. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of powerful women in journalism, period. Um, my former employer, the Associated Press, their executive editor just took over at the Washington Post. Um, and so, you know, shout to all the women and black women who are out there changing the game. I wanted to move on to name, image, and likeness. Uh, in May, even before the Supreme Court came down with their decision in Austin, you wrote about a Duquesne University uh, bringing in a personal brand coach to help with their athletes. I'm assuming this is going to become the way that it is. Could you speak to why that? Um, why you think it's important and what you think of the current landscape right now following the Austin decision. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot there, you know? Um, well, Duquesne was getting ahead of the curve and there's a young man here in the Pittsburgh area by the name of Jordan Rooney. And um, he really understands this, this uh, two things very well, marketing and social media and, and sports, you know, cause he's a baller himself. And so he proposed this to Duquesne and they said, this is a great idea. And Jordan's thing with this, I think is, is an overlooked aspect and, and look him up on social media. If you can, Jordan said, yeah, you know, making money is great and everything, but I'm teaching, you know, I want to help athletes use this to make an impact on the world because let's be honest. And I'll get to the, the current landscape part of your question right now. The vast majority of college athletes do not have endorsement deals loading for them to make money while they're in college. It just doesn't work that way. Um, there are a few at the top of the food chain with huge followings already on social media that can get some, some cash money. But for the rest of them, okay, what are you gonna do with that platform? So I think that that's the, that's the landscape right now is that finally the NCAA is 
made an incremental move under extreme duress and pressure, mind you. It wasn't like they took the lead on this. They're, they're really at the end of this train to say, all right, we're going to allow the athletes to have the same rights that all the other students have. You know, um, and so uh, while I'm glad that the NCAA did it, let's know that they were forced to do it and that really we're not at the heart of the problem yet. The problem is that the NCAA itself makes um, approximately a billion dollars a year in revenue, and the athletes don't get to share any of that. And name, image, and likeness is not going to solve that problem. So it's a good start, but there's more work to be done. Yes, yeah, so, so we've talked about this a lot. The problem is, is players should be able, these are student athletes, and they should be able to be empowered to control their name, image, and likeness. The concern is, is there's still 18, 19, 20-year-old young adults who haven't been through a lot of this now, and there are people out there, unfortunately, that will prey on them. I mean, uh, you look at, you look at uh, the guy in, in Miami who's decided he's going to pay the whole team. He's not looking out for them, and the $500 is not going to make a difference for them. The NCAA is not taking the lead. I'd say it's even worse. I think that they're abdicating their responsibility. So how do you make sure that, that student-athletes are empowered, get educated, and at the same time don't have this, what I would call, predatory behavior that's, that could take over this landscape? Absolutely. Great point. Great question. And um, it's called coaching. You know what I mean? It's called, that is the coach's responsibility. I mean, hey, they're making enough money, are they not? You know, and the, in my opinion, the coach's real job starts – when the practice is over, when the game is over, you know, if we really want to live up to this thing about, yes, these are students here to get an education and the vast majority of them are a couple of them are in college, you know, a small percentage of them are in college for um, a couple months or maybe two years to prepare for their professional athletic career, but the rest of them are not. So it's the coach's job to educate them on what's going on with NIL and to protect them. You know, um, I met you guys on this show because I helped coach John Thompson from Georgetown write his autobiography. I came as a shadow and he is the paragon of what a coach should be. And his primary instinct, and it comes to loud and clear in his book, his primary responsibility was to protect these kids. And, you know, he took that extremely seriously. And so I think that the answer to keeping them from getting taken advantage of and preyed on and used is for coaches of integrity and wisdom and with uh, the understanding that their main job is to help them grow as people and not help them win games. It's those coaches' responsibility to protect the kids. Shoot, I got two kids who are playing college basketball right now. And when I drop them off at campus, I am, you know, implicitly leaving them in the care of the coach. So coach, do your job. So one of the reasons we actually wanted to talk to you about this is Jason and I both almost simultaneously when this name, image, and likeness came out was, what would John Thompson say? How would he have reacted? And that's what mm. led us to want to contact you to discuss this topic was, <laughs> was we couldn't think of anybody better at this point to say, what would John Thompson, what would his reaction have been? And what do you think he would have done at that? I know it's hard to predict what somebody would have done. But knowing him like you got to know him, how do you think he would have reacted to this decision? And, and how do you think he would have, because I'm sure he would have done this, how would he have led from there? 
Yeah, that's a tough question. And I've always been, um, and I will answer, but I've always been very reluctant to project my beliefs onto Coach Thompson because he wrote the book in order to explain exactly who he was and what it was about. He made an outstandingly incredible, bold statement at the end of his book where he said, it's time to pay the athlete. <laughs> you know, to my knowledge, the only big time coach to ever come out and say that. He said, the current system isn't working. And he also said, there's a lot of wrinkles in there, and I honestly don't know the answer to them. You know, so I think that uh, based on what he said in his book, I would hypothesize that if Coach Thompson were here right now, he would say, yep, these kids do deserve to, to have this right to, to be paid for their name, image, and likeness, but we got to make sure that they're not taken advantage of. we got to make sure that they're educated. we got to try and help them as best we can. And he would put the responsibility not on the kids because, as he said over and over in his book, these are young people. They're in college to learn. Like, we expect them to make mistakes because they come here imperfect. And so he would put the responsibility on the coaches. You know, I think that that would be and, – and the institutions. Okay, what infrastructure are we setting up to guide these athletes? Who is counseling them on this? You know, um, when it came to representation of his players who went pro, he sent all of them to David Falk because he felt that Falk was the best option and, and would – and would do best by his players. And he had a comfort level with him. And so, you know, I think that he would do something similar with helping his athletes navigate and, and instructing college sports to help all athletes navigate name, image, and likeness. But he wouldn't leave it up to the NCAA because um, he prefaced his, his comment about uh, when he called me up and said that it was time to pay athletes, he started the conversation by saying, hey, Jesse, I'm going after the NCAA. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he would not leave it up to that. I, I know you don't we, put the you don't put the the wolf in charge of the hen house. No, definitely not. I know we got to let you go soon. I just wanted to ask you one more from me. Uh, you recently directed your first documentary on Darnella Frazier. People can find that on ESPN Plus. Tell us a little about her story and what was that like for you to to have that experience directing? Man, thank you so much for asking. Darnella Frazier was the young teenager in Minneapolis who courageously filmed the death of the murder of George Floyd. And had she not got that on video, 2020 as we know it would not have happened. This whole new civil rights movement, which was the biggest uh, and most inclusive movement for human rights in American history, would not have happened. George Floyd would have been just another name in the roll call of, of people who died under suspicious and murky circumstances. So. Nobody really knew who Darnella was, though, through this whole thing. You know, she was just a name, and she was just defined by that video. But Darnella Frazier is a young Black girl from South Minneapolis with hopes, dreams, and struggles and aspirations. And that was our goal, to, to show that. Who is the woman who literally changed history by standing there for 10 minutes with the police threatening her and telling her to stop filming? and still film the murder of George Floyd. And again, it was the idea of one of the black women who run the undefeated, shout to Sharon Matthews, who's our director of original content. She said, Jesse, what do you think about this, you know, directing this doc? She knew that I was interested in getting that type of experience. I had already covered the trial of, of Derek Chauvin from beginning to end. And so um, if anyone gets a chance to go over to ESPN Plus and check it out, it is part of our series of films that we put out once a month and it's called Black History Always. And we put these films out on the 29th of each month to symbolize that black history 
is more than just limited to the month of February, which has 28 days. You know, Jesse, when I hear Jesse Washington, I don't understand how you have time to play basketball, let alone be good at it. You're a senior writer. <laughs> you're a director. You're a moderator on Ali that we're not even going to get to. You, how do you get all of this stuff done and still have time to go practice your shot? And and and, and once you tell us how that is, can you work with Ben Simmons afterwards? <laughs> oh God, you went there, Jeff. <laughs> uh, I did. I did take a swipe at Ben's three pointer in my little Spalding article. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, uh, be, because. Uh, but you know, I mean. I'm very fortunate, and, I, and to all the young people out there, and to people just in general, you know, if you pursue as a profession the things that you care about, then it doesn't feel like work. And so writing for The Undefeated, I care about these topics. I think they're important. I think it's a privilege to have the platform that I do to be able to share these thoughts. Uh, it was a privilege to write John Thompson's book. Um, it was a tremendous opportunity to get to tell the world, hey, this is who Darnella Frazier is. And so working hard on these things um, – is uh, is not a heavy lift. And so, especially all you young people out here, find what it is that you care about in life and then try to have your job be about that. And as far as hooping, man, you know, I got too much pride to go out there and be lousy. I got a daughter and a son <laughs> in my house who are like better than me already. And so I'm just trying to keep up with them. And they be talking mad junk because I beat them for years. And now that I can't beat them no more, um, you know, they're killing me. So uh, Coltrane at Drexel, Corinne at Boston University, you guys are my motivation for, for staying in the gym. And when y'all come home, I'm giving you these buckets. Jesse, all I got is pride. I got no game at all. Jeff's going to get the last one. Yeah, let yeah you so, so um, look, there's so many other things we want to talk about you, hope, talk with, with you about. Hopefully we can have you back. But I'm going to ask you a very important question. We've had Zach Spiker on here a couple times. What, hey. are you, what are you expecting this year out of Coltrane and out of that team? Oh, man. <laughs> well, shout to Coach Spiker over there at Drexel University. And may I repeat that they won the Colonial Athletic League last year and went to the NCAA. It's for the first time in quite some time. It was a tremendous accomplishment in a COVID season. So my son Coltrane was injured last season and did not get to participate. So what I am um, hoping is that he has a healthy season and can contribute to his team. And then, you know, it's tough, man. Um, you know, uh, Drexel brings back the majority, but not the entirety. Uh, they lost two starters, you know what I'm saying? Um, graduation, the transfer situation is always tough. There's a lot of good players that transferred out of the Colonial Athletic Association. I'm sure there's some good ones who are transferring in. And so um, I just really, what I expect is for um, Drexel to keep the momentum, to be able to compete with every team in the league and to make a good run at the title. And more importantly, for their program to keep emphasizing the education of these young men. If you go to their social media, you see that I think earlier this week, um, Drexel men's basketball took a trip to Washington, D.C. and toured the National Museum of African-American History. And so um, to me, that shows that they are educating these guys as well as winning chips. So um, as long as they keep doing that, then Coach Spiker, Drexel basketball, you'll have my support. Yeah, we've talked to Coach Spiker. They're building people, not players there, and it's very impressive. Jesse, we always appreciate the time. Like we said, we could go forever, but we want to let you go. Hope to talk to you again soon and look forward to what comes out next. Yeah, man, you guys do a great job. Thank you for engaging with these issues. You're, uh, you're, you're helping solve the problem. We appreciate it. Thank you for what you do. Uh, you have a great one. Take care. Bye-bye. Jeff, you want to talk about having a profound conversation? <laughs> 
I, I'd have him on every week if, if we could. But the guy's got, he's doing so much. Like, right. I, I mean, seriously. Well, apparently he's going to beat you in basketball now, too. <laughs> we had so many other things to talk. I mean, he's moderating a, an important series on Ali on PBS right now that's also part of the Undefeated. There's there's so many other things to talk about. And, and we're going to go, this is like, I was really excited about the show this week because you have Jesse talking about really important issues. And then we're just going to go... After the break, we're going to go to Susie Petrocelli just about even, you know, the same thing. And we're just going from Yale to Harvard, by the way. It's, uh, yeah, they're all much <laughs> smarter than me. Why don't we hit the break? When we come back, we'll bring Susie on and uh, talk soccer, women, and much more. Stick with us. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. And we're back, Jeff. You always forget that we come back on the air after the commercial plays, and you're trying to have a conversation with me, but you're having it with the audience. <laughs> Are you joining us in this second nah, half of the show? You know what? I, like, there's just nothing witty to say at this point. There's nothing to say at all at this point. It's just like, and and then you know what? That's why we have these amazing guests. Is so I don't have to talk that much. They say much more in fewer words than you ever will, Jeff. Going, yes. we're going to talk soccer in a minute until we get Susie on the line. Uh, you watched the Euro final last week yes i did you hate the way that it's decided in penalty kicks. it's ridiculous I, look i understand you don't want to play forever but you can't come down to the that big a tournament get to the end of all of that it be this battle of 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 intensity of, of perseverance of, of all the things that you're doing for all that period of time and then just say we're going to have penalty kicks now and it, i know there is some strategy to it but it essentially boils down to a goalie having a, a ball launched at him from a close distance and him having to pick to go left or right. Yeah. And then they are, you and never... it looks and, and the, the, the hard thing about it is I don't think I used to think a guy swinging and missing a curve ball in a major league game was when you looked worse and worst in sports. I don't think anything looks worse than when a goalie dives the wrong way <laughs> sure, and then the ball goes in the other side of the net. I, I sense a challenge coming up for <laughs> Jeff Cohen. One day soon, we might have to contact the union. Oh, no, no. we Wait, wait. Hold on. I already talked so, to the union about you going in there and right, playing We're going to leave that there and go to Susie. <laughs> How <then>. dare you? <laughs> Susie Petricelli is former captain of the Harvard women's soccer team, youth coach, producer, a uh, long list, along with author of the great book, Raised a Warrior, a memoir of soccer, grit, and leveling the playing field. Susie, thank you for rescuing me from a challenge where Jeff's going to have somebody take shots at me on goal in soccer. How are you today? I am so good. Thank you guys so much for having me. And I and I totally agree. My heart breaks every time the goalie goes the wrong way. <laughs> Jeff is just not a penalty kick fan. It, well, except, except when you're shooting, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't mind it when the goalie goes the other way when you're shooting. You know, we wanted, no, of course. Yeah, you breathe a, you breathe a sigh of relief, right? We, we wanted to, to start off with soccer. We'll get into your story, but it, soccer sort of plays such a big part. You have such a passion, but you're not the only one in your family that, that plays soccer. Jeff is fascinated by the fact that your twin sister plays soccer. Tell us about that and what it was like to play together. 
Yeah, so I have an identical twin sister, and we were very, very different off the field, totally different personality. We dress completely different. Um, and so we didn't get along that well off the field. But when we were on the field together, um, you know, it was just like like easy, and we felt we were you know grateful to have each other. Um, and we worked as a team. So it was a really funny dynamic between the two of us. And actually, it ended up working out, and the story's in the book, but it ended up working out that the two of us together really got into or had the opportunity to go play either at Stanford or Harvard because we, we had each other. She actually was the motivated, more motivated one academically and in school, and I was sort of like the athlete twin, right? And um, But if it weren't for each other, we wouldn't have had those opportunities. So it's, it's a pretty cool story the way it all worked out. Yeah, but wasn't there an incident where, as a result of you and your sister playing on the same pitch, that, <laughs> that you got a red card? Yes. Yeah, that was really crazy. And I think that was partially our fault because we always thought it was fun to have like very close numbers. So she was two and I was 12, which in hindsight is never a good idea for twins, um, just for anybody out there. Um, and yeah, so this ref gave my sister a yellow card in the game, and then he mistakenly um, you know, I, I had a tackle that was questionable, but not worth a red card. And um, he immediately went to the red card for me. And I was like, God, that's weird. And of course, my dad's going crazy on the sideline and the coach is getting crazy, going crazy. The coach get kicks, kick, kicked out. My dad gets kicked out. And then all of a sudden it hit us like, oh, my God, my, you know, Kate, it was the twin thing. Um, so, yeah, it, it, we, we have had some funny moments as, as twins. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, that was, a, that was a good one. All right. Well, we, we've talked to other athletes who have twins and, and I have a, a pair of nieces who are identical twins who played field hockey. We got to ask, was there a time that you guys switched jerseys? You know, not jerseys, no, but we did, we did actually, it's a funny story. So when we were about, let's see, 10 or 11, you know, you get that question gets asked a lot. They're like, well, have you ever tricked this? Have you ever switched classes? Have you ever tried to trick your teachers? And honestly, we felt kind of like losers because we had never tried it. We'd never like had the courage <laughs> to try it. So we actually like we kind of winked at each other one day. We were like, let's just say we did it and nobody found out. So we did. So we started telling people that we did it and nobody found out. And then later on, we're like, yeah, we totally made that up. You know, like 15, 20 years ago, we're like, yeah, that was all made up. Yeah, we didn't actually do that. We all right. didn't actually do that. All right. So who's going to fess up to writing this amazing book, Raised a Warrior, a memoir of soccer, grit, and leveling the playing field? Was it you or your sister? <laughs> It was me. Yeah, my my sister's a little bit more private. You, you know, you can tell in the book. I, I don't uh, hold back um, on anything. My sister's a little more private, so I actually had to check with her along the way, um, like every six months or so as I was writing to make sure she was cool with everything I was putting in the book. From what I've read and, and the interviews I've seen, it seems like this was a journey for you to, to uncover some of the injustices you didn't realize. When did you begin to realize the disparity between men's and women's sports, and, and who did you discuss that with to, to figure this all out? That's such a good question. You know, I I didn't realize it really until I was in my 20s. Um, it started to hit me a little bit when I was at Harvard, but I really, you know, I'm, I'm very naive, and I also just didn't want to believe. I really just didn't want to believe that I, you know, ha I was being considered like a like less than um, as a woman, as, as a female athlete. Um, it's almost like, you know, like when I was a kid, my, I grew up in this football family and baseball family, and my dad was a football star. My grandfather was a football star. And, um, you know, I, I, was, I, sort of, I was looking forward to it for, like, you know, the first six years of my life, really, with, like, a passion. 
And then, like, before I even had an opportunity to play or to prove myself and, like, earn some respect, it was, it's almost like getting benched before you even have a chance, you know, before there's even a tryout. Um, so I had those moments looking back where I was, uh, you know, as, like, a 20, you know, mid-20-year-old thinking, like, oh, yeah, that, that really didn't feel good. But, but I had had the opportunity to play soccer because they had just started allowing girls to play soccer in my town in AYSO um, when I was about six, so five, six. So, you know, we played one year on the boys' team, and then the following year, um, it, you know, after that they had enough girls to, let, uh, to have enough girls' teams for everybody to play. But, um, but it really wasn't until my 20s when I, real, I was sort of walking down a hallway in one of the Harvard Athletic Buildings, and at Harvard, they have a, like a black and white picture of every team from every year. It's really cool. It's really beautiful. And so I'm, I'm looking at our photo from the previous year, and then I'm walking backwards in time, looking at all the photos. And I realized, you know, looking back like 12 pictures, and that was the end of the women's team. And then the, men, the pictures for the men's team go down another hallway. They turn a corner. They go down another hallway. And then they turn another corner. You know, I mean, the, the, the Harvard men's soccer team is one of the oldest soccer teams in the country. So, um, you know, and so the, that was like a real visual, like striking visual moment for me when I realized that the history of women's sports is so much shorter than the history of men's sports. Um, and then, you know, obviously it took, you know, it took me really this next 20 years, 25 years, and I'm still learning, you know, I mean, there's still new statistics um, coming out. Like we just heard last week um, for the anniversary of Title IX, which is a couple weeks ago on June 23rd, we just heard that, you know, girls in the United States are still getting a billion dollars less in sports scholarships in the United States. So, you know, these statistics are still coming out. We're, uh, you know, I'm like the, the awakening is still happening. So I feel like, you know, we ha as far as we've come and the opportunities, you know, there's obviously, you know, hundreds of thousands of girls that now have opportunity to, opportunities to play sports in high school and college, which is absolutely amazing. Um, but we still have so far to go. One of the things that you've sort of taken on pretty directly that seems like a contributing factor to all this is the disparity in media coverage for women's sports. Can, yeah. you, can you talk more about that and why more coverage is so important to growing sports for women as a whole? Yeah, that's an awesome question. Thank you. And, and by the way, I'll just take a second to, to tell both of you that including, you know, including me today in your show and including a story about, you know, girls' experience in sports is like huge progress. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to all female athletes. Um, so I really can't thank you enough for that. Um, but, but yeah, so basically I learned, and I, you know, this is one of those things I'm still, you know, these statistics are starting to come out, right? We're starting to get more data, um, which is so important, but you know, there, there's a statistic that's pretty shocking that women's um, sports in the United States still only gets 4% of the total sports media landscape, which, and actually I, the statistic that I heard was that it, we were at 6% about 10 years ago, we're actually losing ground. So we're going, we're now we're down to 4% of sports media. And you have to remember that includes negative press. <laughs> so the amount of positive, you know, media for women's, for female athletes and for female teams is so like, you know, so low. I mean, the gap is so huge. And it's like, when you think about it that way, then you start to like, your mind is like explodes. You're like, okay, well, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Like we're not on, we're not in sports papers. We're not in sports magazines. We're not really, we're not on sports radio yet. Thank God for you guys. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're not in, you know, there's, we're not in sports movies yet, really. We're not very many. We're not in sports books. Publishing my book was not easy. I mean, people, everybody basically told me there's no market for a girl's sports story. Um, so that's one of the things that I'm trying to grow and prove and, 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a struggle, you know, and I think that, that you know, the, my generation and the following generations, though, are really going to change that. Um, and, you know, the, the wave is starting, the wave is growing, girls are, girls are earning respect, you know, it's, we're not being given respect, we're earning it one by one. And, and um, you know, and I also think the important thing, too, is, is dads want that, you know, like, one of the cool things about my book is I'm getting like a lot of res- very cool responses from dads who have daughters who are female athletes. You know, my, the story of me and my bonding with my dad through sports and, you know, it's, it's an easy way to connect with anybody, right? It, it, you're, you can, you can watch a game and you can connect with your dad about his favorite sport and you can love it with him. And, um, and I think that's one of the ways that uh, we're going to move things forward is, is with dads and daughters and, um, and the, you know, enjoying, enjoying sports together and, and respecting each other through sports. You know, you talk about, about the prevalence of, or the lack of prevalence of media when it comes to women's sports. This past week, we had an, we had something which I thought was pretty cool, which was Candace Parker has now been announced to be on the cover of NBA yes. 2K. What is yes. a moment like that? You know, people, I've heard people say, well, what's the big deal? Tell, tell us what, and tell our audience what the big deal is about that incident that that uh announcement well it's i mean it's so many levels um like the first thing that pops to mind is is first of all there's not a lot of representation for female athletes in video games at all um and there's really not a lot of video games in general for girls um there's not a lot and that goes back to you know there's not a lot of tech girls are girls are not in math and engineering and science and um you know i mean i could go on and on but um, but this in particular was very, very exciting. And I don't know if you guys noticed that there was a ton of uh, backlash, too, online. Um, there was a lot of, of uh, people who automatically said, why, why would they put a woman on the cover of, of, this, of this video game? Um, and, you know, and, I'll, and I'm being nice about the comments that, you know, there was a lot of trolling online about, about their decision. Um, but I, I, think it's, I think it's a huge step forward. I think, you know, it's, it, what it means to me is that, People in people in decision-making roles are valuing female athletes the same as their male athletes, and that is such a huge step forward for us. And, and when you see, just see that cover when you're in the store, just like when you see your book in, in in a bookstore, when you see more of that, what is the influence not on 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 young girls coming up, but also on young boys? On boys too, it really is. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, it's the whole thing about. You know, even in, in my town, I hear dads and, and boys say, well, you you know, like they're saying to a, a boy who maybe didn't play well or maybe had a bad day, oh, you, you know, you played like a girl today or something like that. Or even even sometimes as a joke, they could say it innocently. Well, you, you know, you're playing like a girl. Maybe they don't really mean it um, in a negative way, but it's still a joke, right? And it's still kind of ridiculing. Um, so, you know, now that, that like it's changing the narrative, right? It's changing the, it is. You're getting rid of the stigma, and um, it's, it's so important for little boys, I agree with you, and, and everyone to see, you know, a female, strong, badass woman on the cover of this video game. You know, you, you talk about all the things that sports can teach us, and, and we like to talk about that a lot, the impact that sports has on society and community. Can you talk for us about the lessons you think are learned, not just on the field, but off the field, that athletes can benefit from, particularly women? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, that's that I could go on and on about that too, but it's one of my favorite things to think about. And, and as I reflect on my life as an athlete that, you know, I, there's more and more things that I realize I learned from sports, but, you know, obviously sportsmanship, um, you know, learning how to be a competitor, 
um, learning how to be inclusive, the discipline, the commitment, and really, I really like the grit, which it's funny because the, the publisher, I didn't realize when you publish a book, the author has very little control over the subtitle. Um, and so the publisher, you know, wrote or pre presented the subtitle to me, Soccer, a memoir of soccer, grit, and leveling the playing field. And to be honest with you, I was a little uncomfortable, I guess, about the word grit, because to me, that's something that you don't like bestow upon yourself. Like, I wouldn't say, just like I wouldn't say like, oh, I'm the best one out there today, you know? I, I would never say, okay, well, I am, I'm gritty. Um, like it's, it's something that you have to earn and that, uh, you know, you, you, other people have to, have to, if you're lucky, would honor you with saying that. But, but so they, they use that word in the title. And, um, you know, I think that like looking back now, realizing, you know, it, that's one of the most important things that girls can learn in life and, and not it's partially because being a girl, you actually have to be grittier, right? You are going to face barriers. You, people are going to tell you, you can't dream certain things. People are going to tell you, you don't belong in that boardroom. People are going to tell you, you don't belong in that sport. Um, and you just have to be gritty and you have to believe in yourself and you, and you know, you have to, you have to ignore them and you have to stick with your dream for a very long time and it's very hard. You know, Susie, in addition to the book, which again is called Raised a Warrior, a memoir of soccer, grit, and leveling the playing field, you're doing so much more. Soccer was just a start for you. Um, do you if you have a minute, we wanted to talk to you about some, one of your other projects, which is st apparently started with you not realizing that, that Pele's daughter lived <laughs> not far from you. Yes. Yeah, she lived over my back fence, which is so funny. Yeah, a mutual friend of ours walked into our house, um, and you know, she my my whole family's there. My my in laws are there. All my my husband played soccer with me at Harvard. Um, all of his siblings played Division One soccer. Uh, my father in law is an Italian uh, soccer fanatic, um, and so you know, there's soccer balls everywhere and and jerseys everywhere. And so my friend walked into our house and she said. She's like, wow, you guys are really into soccer. It's like, did you know Pele's daughter lives right over your back fence? <laughs> I was like, what? I mean, I was so stunned. And I literally, like, from that moment, started, like, peeking over my back fence to see <laughs> if he was ever there. I thought, and I really was thinking to myself, well, he's got to be there, like, on holidays, right? He's got to visit his family on Christmas. Like, so I would def I would be, like, you know, like, paying special attention on holidays to see if he was ever there. But we ended up not meeting until two years later until we had actually moved out of that house, the same friend, because at that point, I was pretty, you know, I was about three quarters way done with this book. And Kelly had started work, working on this film called Warriors of a Beautiful Game. And they, the, the, two, the two are very much um, symbiotic. Her film was looking at the lack of opportunities and the lack of, of uh, soccer infrastructure for girls in Brazil. And my book obviously was looking at the same thing for, um, but from an American perspective. So this friend of ours literally set us up at like a, you know, at like a dinner next, basically purposely sat us next to each other at this dinner and was like, you know, you guys are idiots. How have you not met? Um, so we ended up uh, talking that night, almost like, you know, those moments where you're like, the whole world kind of hazes out and you're just focused on one conversation. Yep. Um, so we, we were like, we were like that and we kind of been, you know, getting, you know, basically best friends and since that night and we worked, we were collaborating as friends on the book and the film together. And then finally she asked me to be a producer on the film. So, uh, we traveled around the world, uh, for about a year and a half 
um, filming this amazing documentary about looking at what women's professional, what the lives of women's professional footballers looks like in six different parts of the world. Um, so we went to England, France, um, Africa. Um, we went to the Orlando Pride. Um, and uh, we went to, to um, where else did we go? Paris. Anyway, it was, it was, it was absolutely the most incredible year I've had. Um, and the film now is in editing, and we're hoping that it will be out this winter. Well, when it comes out, we hope to have you back to talk about it. We encourage people to go out and get the book. And we appreciate what you're doing out there fighting. Thanks for giving us a few minutes to talk about it and talk about the issues. I mean, you guys, I really can't thank you enough. This is a huge opportunity. I love sports radio, and, you know, it's, it's not lost on me that, that what you guys have done for me here. So thank you so, so much. Uh, thank you. Best of luck with everything. Jeff, Thank I, you. I love the stories. I love the passion. I, you know, it's see again. Like this show's not long enough. No, uh, be, because again, this is something we could talk about. I mean, just between you and we I, we could ask more questions. <laughs> well, well, what's coming up in a couple of weeks? The Olympics coming coming up in a couple of weeks. And you and I were talking before the show started. Was was the U.S. women's national team once again is the top or one of the top teams in the world? We didn't even get to pay. The the, the men's team is not there yeah. at all. No. They're they're off playing for something else. They played Martinique last night, Jeff. Yeah, and and somehow the they women, look good, by the way. And somehow the women's team, which has done more for the sport, I think, than the men's team has, and and done more worldwide, somehow gets paid less. And you and I have covered the women's national team. We've interviewed Carly Lloyd. We've interviewed Samantha Mewis and others, and 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 we've we've gone to exhibition games in this city where they had a packed stadium. For an exhibition game. Mm -hmm. uh, women's sports needs to be talked about more. And I'm glad every time, when we, when we had Paula Kramer on here, when we have women athletes on here, it's just a start. I mean, one of my frustrations is sometimes not being able to get more. I mean, how many times have we talked about, I, I don't know if you've heard, but there's going to be, I think it's the Orioles game, there's going to be an all-woman booth. Oh, yeah, a call in the game. Call I think that's game. awesome. Yeah, and how hard has it been for us to get but, Some of those people but again, to come on. She, women refs, same she, thing. She mentioned that's right. We wanted to talk to women refs when mm -hmm. we went to the G League games at the yeah. time. Uh, but she she mentions the trolls that you know spew their hate because they don't want to see yeah. a woman on the cover or hear a woman's voice calling the game. Yeah, and we talk. We talk. Like, I got to be honest. I don't only hear a bad male as opposed to a good woman just because it's a guy's voice. Well, well so, so so I, I got I got to tell you when when I was watching the Euro final, the second one of the one of the players missed a goal. My first thought is, unfortunately, I have a feeling what's going to happen next. It even when Susie said that, it didn't cross my mind once that somebody would write something angry about Candace Parker being on the cover of NBA 2K. <laughs> I have found that people are always willing to troll no matter what. Josh. I mean, seriously, <laughs> how how could that be a bad bad thing? Your game, you could still take your little fingers and play the game as much as you want. Think about how much it positive it does to have Candace Parker on the cover, and there is no downside at all, and people still have to find something wrong with it. Can, can we just talk about the back-to-back -back of these two interviews that we had and, and what we talked about? Like, I, I'm hesitant to go talk about like a game because it's trivial compared to the topics. Especially like I could give you the city. I could give you the Phillies update. They're up yeah. three nothing. We could talk about should they be buyers or sellers, but. In the grand scheme of everything we talked about today, it's a trivial thing. Yes, it's fun and it's exciting. There's mm -hmm. a doubleheader. But, I mean, 
these were some conversations, Jeff. It, well, it's just, look, I, I don't know what else to say about it. I'm speechless from the conversations that we're able to have as a result of having this platform. We have some fun weekend plans, right? Yes, we do. The- we Well, you get to pronounce it because you've gotten so good at it, but we're going to be down tomorrow at 11 o'clock, and where are we going to be? Concord Elegance. Look at look, you. Looking at the car show, uh-huh. seeing some good Corvettes. With? Uh, supporting Dick Vermeil and yeah. Shop and all the efforts of Cool Cars for Kids and the great work that they're doing. Uh, we had a few people contact us uh, throughout the week. Yes, they did know that my favorite sport in the Summer Olympics was gymnastics, Jeff. I did make the person who contacted me one of them. Uh, who's going to go? It'll it was cool. so stunning. It was memorable. That's the thing. <laughs> I was just surprised <laughs> that he listened to the show enough to the, ask. Y- you know, the thing is now you're going to have to post photos. Of me doing gymnastics? Oh, yeah. Oh, I told you there's pictures. Well, we need to see them on our site. I always say pictures that didn't happen. No, I'll put it out. I'm not. Really? Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm not embarrassed by it. I'm still not putting out the video of me getting dunked on. See, uh, <laughs> that's where, well, apparently Jesse's going to give us another hey, opportunity and, for and you by, to get dunked and, on. And by the way, I was 40 pounds heavier now. Now I could get about two inches off the now ground. Now you got a higher vertical <laughs> leap. You're better. Now, now I have some vertical leap. I think I can get over a baseball card now. That, <laughs> how am I supposed to talk after you say something like that? Then after that, we're going to take a little break, cool off from the heat. Where are we going tomorrow night, Jeff? Union. That's right. Another packed house, huh? Yeah. It should be fun back in the stadium. They play DC United tomorrow yeah. night. Yeah. You know what? They need to they need to get going tomorrow. And yeah. I think it's going to be, they're, they're going to have a full fan base there and it's going to be electric. Um, I can't let you off the air without bringing up Rob Manford. I have to bring up something not serious. Because he talked this week flippantly about how we're now apparently going to get rid of the fake runner at second base thing, and we're going to get rid of the seven-inning doubleheaders. I like the seven-inning doubleheader. Well, that's because you don't have to stay up as late to watch the game. I mean, let's be honest about the Younger Jeff would have a problem with it. Older (laughs) Jeff is perfectly fine with getting to bed early. Older Jeff is like, this is perfect. But yeah. he also said, it seemed to say he's in favor of banning the shift. Let's just say you regulated the shift by requiring two infielders on each side of second base. What does that do? It makes the game look like it looked when I was 12. It's not change. It's kind of a restoration. Are we going to see the shift go away next year? No. Why not? Because he's just talking. Why does he talk then? Because uh, uh, he's just talking. Because he was trying because to distract it was a, from it, the Because it was a were... state of the game thing and he had to speak. They're not going to fix it. He was I'm telling to... you, I have no faith in the in, in MLB that they're going to be able to fix all of these problems. He was just trying to distract from how ugly those uniforms you... were. Oh, God. They got a lot of hate on social media. I don't understand why you would superimpose a logo on top of another logo. In fairness, I yeah. sent them to you a week ago on text message and yeah. told you how much I disliked them. Because <laughs> I am a Jersey guy. Like, you, do, I don't buy them, but I like them. Do you want to talk trivial? Do you know how much that somebody's paying or bidding for Shohei Otani's actual jersey? How much? It's over $100,000. Look, I think he's great for baseball. Oh, I do too. But uh, I mean, growing the brand and... I mean, throw 100 miles an hour, <laughs> hit a home run now. Yeah, I, you know what? Even though there's interleague play, I had no idea he could throw over 100 miles an hour. It's... I mean, when he, I saw him throw that at the All-Star game, I was impressed. I, I, do you, did you watch the game? Did you watch the home run derby? Uh, I watched the home run derby for a little bit. You watched Pete Alonso mm-hmm. put on a show? He was fun. He did seem to have fun. He was having and, a and blast. I, and I owe him an apology because I don't know if you remember, years ago he on our High Hope show, he had actually tweeted to me saying I knew nothing about launch angle. 
And, and apparently he knows a lot about launch angle. <laughs> apparently you don't know anything about launch angle. He's won two home run derbies in a row. And had fun doing it. Jeff, 15 seconds left. Any final thoughts for you this week? Say something good. I'm going to say nothing just because, <laughs> because you profound. make me do this. Thank you for joining us this week. Make Union, sure you join us night. next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.